Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we, as we turn to God's word this morning. Bow your heads. Lord, we, we thank you and we praise you for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray and ask, Lord, as we look at your word today and, and we study baptism and what that means for us, Lord, we ask and pray that it would strengthen our faith and it would lead us to rejoice and it would move us to renew our commitment to follow you faithfully as your disciple. Lord, we know that this doesn't happen and it won't happen apart from the work of your Spirit. So we ask, God, that you'd be at work now through the Spirit in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're talking about uh, baptism. Why a sermon on baptisms? Well, two reasons. One, we l- want to lay a, uh, a solid theological foundation for this so that we think about baptism rightly. And connected to that is baptism is meant to be a, a means of grace, a, a, a means of strengthening our faith. So that's why we're looking at baptism today. I remember when I was in, in college, I got a phone call from my, my auntie, and she said, hey, your cousin is getting baptized. She would really appreciate it if you would come and support her. Now, I was raised Catholic and was used to infants being baptized, and so this call confused me because my cousin was 16. Uh, but this phone call would turn out to be one of the most important phone calls I would ever receive in my entire life because I went to my cousin's baptism, and it was at that baptism that God grabbed a hold of me and drew me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It was at that baptism service that I was saved, praise God. But it was, it was confusing. I was like, wait, what? Why is she getting baptized? And there are questions around the subject of baptism. When should a person be baptized? And why should a person be baptized? And what does baptism mean? And what's its purpose? Well, these are some of the questions that we hope to answer today in this sermon. So we're going to look this morning at the meaning and and the method of baptism. And we're going to spend the majority of our time on the meaning of baptism. And then we'll briefly touch on the method at the end. And I think that'll make sense when we, we get there. We practice believer's baptism here at Gospel Fellowship Church, and I'm going to try to explain why that is as we go along. And in the end, we're going to draw three applications for us. And so the message for us this morning is this, in light of what your baptism means, be strengthened, rejoice, and walk in newness of life. Those are the three applications we'll get to at the end. Now, what do I mean when I say that baptism is a means of grace? Maybe you're not familiar with that expression. Well, God has provided various ways that our faith is strengthened. These ways of strengthening our faith are what are called means of grace. So prayer, Bible reading, hearing the preaching of God's word, singing songs of worship, the sacraments, both the Lord's Supper and baptism, these are all examples of means of grace to us. They're given to us by God to to fortify our faith, to confirm our commitment to Jesus Christ. They they move in us by the Spirit. They increase our trust in Christ, our desire to follow Him, our desire to rest in Him and rejoice in Him. That's what they are. Now, when we neglect the means of grace, when we neglect Bible reading, prayer, the preaching of God's Word, songs of worship, and so forth, when we neglect those means of grace, our faith 
over time is weakened. Now, how is baptism a means of grace to us? Well, when we reflect on what our baptism means, when you reflect on what your baptism means, it strengthens your faith, it leads you to worship, and it renews your commitment to Jesus Christ, if that is you are in Christ. So let's look at what the scriptures teach about the meaning of baptism Keeping in mind all the while as we go through this sermon, I want you to be thinking, if you've been baptized, this is for you. Meaning of baptism then, uh, five things. First, baptism marks you out as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism in the New Testament begins with John the Baptist's ministry, and so we read, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Now God sent John to prepare the people's hearts for the Christ, the Messiah. How did John do that? How did he get them ready for Jesus? He called people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Baptism symbolized being cleansed, being washed of their sins, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But it required repentance, and he specifically tells the Jews that their ancestry is not enough. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, Luke 3, 8. His emphasis was on repentance, not ancestry, as the requirement for baptism. Then in John 3.22, we read, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And John's disciples come to John, and they're like, hey, boss, our third quarter baptisms are way down. First and second quarter, we're looking great, but that guy across the river, he's taken a lot of the market share. (laughs) What they say is, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. They're like, they're following him, and John's like, good, great, that's how it's supposed to be. That was the plan all along. He says, I told you, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease, verse 28, verse 30. And then in John 4, 1 and 2, we read Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, we get this note from from the apostle, we get this note, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Now, the point of these verses is it shows that there is a, a direct connection between making disciples and baptizing them in water. The people that were baptized by John became John's disciples. The people that were baptized by Jesus' followers became disciples of Jesus. Baptism signified a person's commitment to follow Christ as his disciple. God's grace worked in their heart, called them to repentance and faith in Christ, and led them to follow him. The point is, is that baptism marks them out as a disciple. Now, the fact that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing uh, people is significant, Because in the Great Commission, when Jesus gives them the command to go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them and teaching them, the most immediate and obvious precursor to that is not circumcision, but the baptism that they had already been doing during his ministry. 
This was not entirely new. It was a command to keep doing what they had already been doing, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a baptism that meant becoming a disciple of Jesus. On the Great Commission, there's only one command. The command is to make disciples, but it's modified by three participles. Those are I-N-G words, they're verbs, baptizing or going, baptizing, and, and teaching. So Jesus said, going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. So baptizing and teaching are the means of making disciples. Going, right, Jesus sends them out to preach a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all the nations. That's Luke chapter 24, verse 47. That's the great commission in Luke. Go and preach this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in my name. Now, those who respond to the gospel with repentance and faith would be baptized and taught to obey all of Jesus' commands. So baptism is the initial rite that marked one out as a disciple of Jesus, and being taught then is the ongoing process of learning to obey, to follow Jesus as a disciple. Of course, this means the person has to be old enough to become a disciple and to be taught the truths of the faith. We baptize children and adults who are old enough to make a credible profession of faith, but not babies because they cannot repent, believe, and commit to following Christ as his disciple. So your baptism signifies that you, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism, second, signifies forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And we've already seen how John proclaimed this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 3.3, Mark 1.4. And we we saw that Jesus told his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to the nations, Luke 24, 47. Then on Pentecost, when God poured out the promised spirit, Peter was preaching that day that Jesus is the Christ. And then the Jews asked him, they were cut to the heart, and they asked him, brothers, what should we do? Like, what do we do? And Peter responds, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself, Acts 2, 38-39. And Jesus continued to bear witness with many more words. He continued to exhort them to be saved. And we read at the end, those who received his word were baptized, verse 41. Now, Peter's talking about the promise. What promise? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit in context. Remember, Jesus had said to his his disciples, wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now, Acts 1-5. He told them in Luke, he said, look, Wait for the promise of the Father. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. That happens on Pentecost. That's what Peter is explaining in his sermon. They're like, hey, are y'all drunk? And he's like, no, we're not drunk. This is the fulfillment of what God had promised, the pouring out of his spirit. And he quotes Joel. So the promise here is not the covenant promise to Abraham, but the new covenant promise of the spirit. As God said through Ezekiel, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll put my spirit within you. 
Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. So Peter says that this promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone who the Lord calls to himself. He's saying, if you repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus, you will be forgiven of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, repentance and faith always go hand in hand. It's like two sides of the same coin. So you don't have to freak out that it just says repent and be baptized, and it doesn't mention faith. But you can't repent, you can't turn away from your sins without also, at the same time, turning to God, to Jesus, in faith. If you repent and believe, then you'll be forgiven. This is what baptism signifies. So when Saul was converted... Ananias said this to him. He said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. So here, baptism is linked with faith, calling on the name of Jesus. And we see that this is when we're washed and purified from our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in both cases, repentance and faith precedes baptism. Only those who received Peter's word were baptized. Paul called on the name of Jesus, and his sins were washed away, and he was baptized. Now, it's not baptism itself that washes away your sins, as if it's some kind of magical uh, rite, as if it works all by itself, apart from faith. It must be linked with faith. Baptism is then this outward picture of an inward reality, that by faith you've been forgiven, you've been purified from your sins. What does that mean? We talk about this so often, I think sometimes we forget the glory of this. Your sins deserve condemnation and death. You stand guilty before a holy God. That's what you deserve. And by faith in Jesus Christ, those sins are forgiven, washed clean. Therefore, you're not guilty anymore. You are no longer condemned anymore. This is what your baptism signifies, and it leads us directly into the next point. Baptism signifies salvation from death and judgment. So the the water in baptism signifies being washed from our sins, being forgiven. But it's more than that. It's deeper. It's richer than that. It also pictures being saved from God's judgment. So in 1 Peter, we read, In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 1 Peter 3.20. Now the flood was God's judgment on unbelievers for their exceeding wickedness, their exceeding sin, and their rejection of him. It was his judgment. But eight people were brought safely through God's judgment, through the waters of God's judgment on the ark. And then Peter says... Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Peter 3.21. So just as those who were in the ark were rescued from God's judgment for sin, so those who are in Christ are rescued from God's judgment from sin, our deserved judgment. That's what we deserve. So, so when we put someone down under the water to baptize them, that is a picture of death and judgment that we deserve for our sins. Okay, I don't want to be overly morbid here, but what would happen if we put the person under the water and we just left them there? 
Anyone? They would die. They would drown, just like they drowned in the flood, just like they died in the flood. This is a picture of what we deserve for our sins, death and judgment. Coming out of the water, then, is a picture that we have safely passed through judgment to life by faith in Christ. Now, just in case we misunderstand this, after saying baptism now saves you, Peter makes two statements about baptism in order to clarify what he means and how exactly this works. The first one is negative. He says, baptism saves not as a removal of dirt from the body. It is not this physical act that saves you. And this guards us against a Roman Catholic view that it works apart from faith. But positively, he says, in baptism, we make an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the appeal to God through faith in Jesus Christ that saves, not the physical act. We appeal to God. What does that mean? It means we make a request. We, we, we're asking God for something. We're asking him to forgive us through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, by faith, our sins are forgiven. We are cleansed from our sins. We're cleansed from the guilt of sin, and therefore we have a clear conscience, a good conscience. God removes our guilt for sin, and therefore there is no more condemnation, no more judgment. This is how we're brought safely through God's judgment. So baptism is not only a picture of being washed and purified of your sins, it's also a picture of being saved from God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus. Going down into the water is this picture of death and coming out is a picture of salvation, specifically rising with Christ to new life. And that leads to our fourth point. Baptism signifies our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is a picture of dying and rising with Christ. We see this in Romans 6, 1 through 11. Paul's responding to this question. Should we sin so that grace may abound? Hey, because God is abundantly gracious, should we just keep sinning so that there's more grace? Is that how we should, should live? And Paul's like, by no means. Like, absolutely not. This is like the strongest way you can say no. 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 Those who belong to Christ have died to sin and they live to God. He asked this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's what he's explaining in Romans 6, 1 through 14. The overall point of that passage is our union with Jesus Christ and what that means, what the implications are. Specifically, we no longer live in sin. We've been united with him in his death and resurrection. And so he uses baptism to support his argument. He points the Christians to their baptism, and he says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When a person is baptized, when they go down under the water, that is a picture of them dying with Christ and being buried with him. And when we bring them back up out of the water, it's a picture of them rising with Christ to new 
life. Baptism is a picture that your old self, literally your old man, who we were in Adam, verse 6, that guy is dead. He doesn't live anymore. You have a new life in Jesus Christ, Christian. That's what your baptism means. And so Paul uses baptism as, of course you can't go on living in sin. Don't you know what your baptism means? You've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. You've died to sin. You've been risen to new life. But that cannot be said of an infant who's baptized. We cannot say that the infant has been united to Christ in his death and resurrection, that he has been raised to new life in Christ. Now, this new life in Christ is an eternal one because Romans 6, 9 says Christ will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. Amen? And since we certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his, verse 5, that means your life in him is also eternal and it's assured because his is eternal. It's awesome. The point is, is that baptism signifies being united and incorporated into Christ. Paul puts it another way in Galatians chapter 3, 27. He says, you're all sons of God through faith. That's actually the end of verse 26. Then he says, for because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Or we, we could translate that, you have been clothed with Christ. Again, this is a picture of our being united with Christ. I used to work as a pharmacist before I was a pastor, when, when, when I put on my, my white coat as a pharmacist, that didn't make me a pharmacist. I was already a pharmacist. Putting on the white coat identified who I am. To say that we're clothed in Christ is to identify who we are. We are Christians. You've changed your clothes, Christian. You've, 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 You've traded in your filthy, sin-stained rags for the pure white robes of righteousness in Christ. Isaiah 61.10. Baptism is the outward sign that you've put on Christ, that you are in Christ. This is why we baptize believers and not babies, because we cannot say of babies that they have put on Christ because it only happens through faith. With infant baptism, they're not yet clothed with Christ. It would be like buying a lab coat for an infant and then hoping that one day, sometime in the future, they will actually wear it as a pharmacist. That's what infant baptism is. There's only the hope that they'll be clothed with Christ. But Paul doesn't speak that way. Paul says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have been clothed in him, not you might be clothed with him sometime in the future. The point is your baptism signifies your union with Christ in his death and resurrection and all of the implications that come with it as a result. And this leads us to our fifth point and one of the implications of our union with Christ. Baptism calls us to walk in newness of life. This is Paul's point in Romans 6. We don't live the way that we did before. So remember verse 4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. We don't live in sin as Christians. 
He says, remember, your baptism means you died to sin. You live to God through Jesus Christ. You no longer live the old way, verse 6. That old man is dead, verse 6. You are no longer enslaved to sin, verse 6. You serve God now. This is why every single baptism that you see is a call to remember your own. It's a call to renew your commitment to follow Jesus Christ as his disciple. Every baptism reminds us, you are no longer ruled by sin. You're ruled by Christ. Sin's power over you, Christian, has been defeated. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin has been defeated. Now, that doesn't mean that as Christians that we're going to be perfect and that we're not going to sin anymore. It, it means we're under new management you don't have to live to sin. You can live to God. You're free to follow Jesus Christ. And that means that the ordinary pattern of our life as Christians is going to be godliness and growth in godliness. The beauty of this is that this is possible because the exact same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 8.11. We have the power to live out this new life in Christ because the Spirit dwells in you. This is Peter's point again. Look, when you repent and believe in Jesus and you're baptized, your sins are forgiven, yes, freed from the penalty of sin. But more than that, you also have the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's what enables you to walk as Jesus' disciple. Do you see how all of these things that baptism signifies are tied together? Now, I want you to imagine with me a prisoner on death row. He's on death row for some terrible crime that he committed. I want you to imagine that this prisoner is released because someone comes and takes his place in the prison. He's been free from the penalty of his crimes, those, those crimes no longer direct the course of his life. This is something similar to what happens uh, to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it would not make sense for that person who's been freed to turn around and walk right back into prison. That would be foolish, right? But imagine with me for a moment that this person doesn't do that. Instead, after being freed, they're super happy that they're out of prison. They're super happy that they're out of jail. And they have this new chance at life. But what they do is they just sit down right outside the prison. They don't go anywhere. They don't do anything. They don't start living their new freedom. They just sit there. What would you call that? I think we would call that a waste. It would be a total waste if that was what happened. Oh, he's glad to be free as far as it goes, but he doesn't do anything. So it is with us if our salvation does not change the way that we live. We're not to go back to sin. That would be foolish. Nor are we to simply wait around for Jesus to return. That would be a tragic waste. You see, our resurrection life is meant to be an active one. Paul doesn't say you've been raised to sit in new life or you've been raised to sleep in new life as much as I would like that. He says, you've been raised to walk in newness of life. It is an active life of faithful obedience and faithful service. 
Now, let me try to summarize what we've seen so far about the meaning of baptism. From the divine perspective, baptism signifies the forgiveness of sin, union with Christ in his death and resurrection, salvation from death and judgment, and entrance into the body of Christ. Those are the spiritual blessings that belong to those who have repented and believed. From the human perspective, baptism signifies our response to the gospel. It's a public confession of repentance and faith, our appeal to God. It's our commitment to follow Christ, marking us as his disciple. And once we see all that baptism signifies, all that it means, it's a lot easier to answer the other questions related to the method of baptism. So let's just briefly touch on the method of baptism. How should it be done? First, baptism is properly done only to those who repent and believe in Jesus and commit to follow him as their Lord and Savior. Adults and children who are able to make a profession of faith. That's because, as we've just seen, baptism is this initial rite. It marks the start of the Christian life as a disciple. It signifies that you have been washed and forgiven of your sins, having been brought through death and judgment to life, having died to sin and risen to life in Christ. For all of those reasons, baptism is for believers following their conversion. So, if you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you've never been baptized, you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, but you've never been baptized, you need to get baptized. It is a step of obedience that should closely follow your repentance and faith. Second, baptism is properly done by immersion, putting someone underwater and bringing them back up again. That's what immersion means. Now, beyond the fact that the verb baptize, to baptize means to plunge, dip, or immerse, beyond that, there are two main reasons for this. First, immersion best fits the description of the baptisms in the New Testament. So, for example, this is why we read that John baptized at Anon because water was plentiful there, John 3.23. If sprinkling was the method, they would not need plentiful water. Second, immersion best fits the symbolism of baptism in the New Testament. Sprinkling pictures cleansing from sin, but only immersion fully pictures everything that baptism signifies. Immersion gives us the best picture of being united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Immersion gives us the best picture of having been brought through the waters of judgment. And even cleansing, washing from sin is best pictured by full immersion rather than simple sprinkling. Third, baptism is properly done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the clear command in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And finally, baptism is ideally done in the church with pastoral involvement. Note the change from properly to ideally in this last one. It's ideally done in the church with pastoral involvement. It's not a requirement, though. The Bible doesn't say that only ordained clergy can perform a baptism. This isn't some kind of special privilege for pastors. However, since it marks entrance into the visible church and there's need to assess a person's profession of faith, it's a good idea to have pastors actively involved in the process, even if they're not the ones who are actually doing the baptism. Second, since baptism is a sign of being incorporated into the body of Christ, the church, it's ideally done in the gathering of believers, if possible. But as the example of 
the Ethiopian eunuch shows us that's not mandatory. Now, the reason doing it in the gathering of, of the church is best is because it's a time of celebration, it's welcoming a new member into Christ's body, and it's an encouragement to everybody who has already been baptized. And that leads us into the, the three applications for us. First, be strengthened and encouraged by what God in Christ has done for you. Every baptism, every baptism reminds you that you, you, dear Christian, have been washed and cleansed and forgiven of your sin. You have been saved from God's judgment and condemnation. You have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection to new life, an eternal life, but also a life that has implications here and now. You've been set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin, so that by the Spirit you can follow Christ. These are the glorious truths of the gospel. We hear these things so much in church that sometimes when we start to hear them, our eyes glaze over. It doesn't get any better than this. Forgiveness of sins, freedom from guilt and condemnation, the assurance of resurrection to new life with Jesus Christ, living eternally with him. Joy, joy in what Jesus has done. Know that your baptism signifies these things. Let it strengthen your faith, brothers and sisters. And this leads us right into the second point, which is to, to say rejoice. In light of all that baptism means, it gives you to rejoice and celebrate. Celebrate what God in Christ has done for you. And when we baptize someone, we celebrate with them. But we don't just celebrate at what God has done in them. We're also celebrating at the same time what God has done in us. How we had a a child who didn't want to get baptized for a season because they didn't want everybody clapping and cheering for them. We explained, look, they're not clapping and cheering for you. They're clapping and cheering for what God in Christ has done for you. You see, every single baptism should be like a party. This awesome celebration full of joy, rejoicing at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And finally, baptism calls us to renew our commitment to walk in newness of life as Christ's disciple. Paul's using baptism as a reminder that we mustn't live in sin, but we must walk out our new life to renew our commitment then to Christ. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Commit to walk in newness of life. Those are our three applications this morning. Let's pray. God, we just thank you and we praise you. We do celebrate what you've done for us in Christ. God, we're so dim sometimes. God, we so easily lose our awe of what you've done. Would you forgive us? Would you capture our, our hearts and our minds again with the glory of it? Would you lead us to a renewed strength in our faith, a renewed joy in what you've done, a renewed commitment 
to follow you. God, do that work by the power of your spirit. Oh, we thank you for this picture of baptism. Thank you for all that it means and all that you've done. We ask that you do these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.